Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Would you please open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. As we continue and near the end of our series through 1 Timothy. Thank you. First Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be dis- disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Let's pray. This is the word of God. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning that you've given us, where your mercies are renewed. Would you promise to feed us and nourish us by the grace of your word and spirit combined? Lord, through the ordinary means of grace of praying together and singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to you and hearing your living and active word, Father, we pray that you would feed us and build us up in Christ. Lord, convict us of sin as we consider this passage and encourage us in faithfulness. And Father, would you above all humble us so that we might bring all glory to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. As we near the end of our series through going uh, through 1 Timothy, this morning's passage, which I just read, may seem to many of us perhaps a bit out of place, strike us as a bit odd. Not only within the letter, as Paul has been concerning himself how the church is to conduct itself, but perhaps even historically. And culturally, a passage concerning the relationship between a slave and a master, if we're honest, maybe makes us uncomfortable. It's a sensitive issue, one which brings to mind the cruelties of history, of brutal injustice. Many may be asking, yes, but what does this have to do with us today as a church? And yet we are daily in need of the reminder that the Word of God is living. It's active. It's always relevant. You see, it's never my task as a preacher to make the Word of God relevant. It's already relevant. It's my task to show us as a people usually how out of step with Scripture we are. And thus how we are usually not relevant with God's Word. Friends, this text, as we've just been working through the book, is exactly what the Lord desires to feed us and grow us as a church. The idea of slavery may seem to be a thing of the past, but it is good to keep in mind that there are actually more people in slavery today than there ever have been in modern history. There are somewhere around 800,000 people trafficked as slaves every year, even here in the U.S., Worldwide, there are estimated to be over 30 million slaves, bringing in an annual revenue of $9 billion. 
Sadly, the vast majority of these are women and young children. And whatever we think of slavery, let us never think that it is a thing of the past. It's current. It's in our own backyard. And it is a cruel evil that every Christian should be actively thinking about, praying about, and working to bring to an end. We must also keep in mind that the Bible has much to say about slavery, both as an institution as well as how Christians should respond. This text that we've just read is just one of those passages. What I want to do this morning, though, is briefly look at how the Bible talks about slavery before we look at what Paul tells us here in 1 Timothy 6. What was slavery like back in the days of Paul's writing? Well, during the era in which Paul wrote... Slavery was, if we're honest, part and parcel of the societal and economic fabric of everyday life. It's estimated that one in three persons were slaves within the Roman and Greek world. The culture of slavery was so huge that Paul brings it up quite a bit, actually, throughout his writings, which we'll look at soon. A couple of things which were unique to slavery in those days uh, may help us give uh, some context as we think about this passage. One, Slavery wasn't motivated by racial inequality or racist societal structures. All kinds of people were slaves in the Roman and Greek world. Moreover, though many were slaves involuntarily through things like becoming prisoners of war, just as many became slaves voluntarily, selling themselves into slavery. Some did it because it was one of the surest ways to becoming a Roman citizen over time. Others did it because it was a way to work back their debt, which in fact highlights another unique aspect of Roman slavery. More often than not, Roman slaves were paid for their labors so that over time they could in fact, with the money earned, purchase their own freedom. What's interesting about this is that the social status of individual slaves was connected usually to the social status of their masters so that you could have a slave in charge of managerially and and looking over others who were in fact themselves free. That wasn't always the case, of course. Those who worked in Roman mines were usually slaves of the lowest kind and died there in the mines. But on the other hand, Uh, You have, on the other spectrum, slaves who were perhaps a part of the emperor's household and who, in fact, commanded great respect throughout the city of Rome among all people, no matter who they were. Many slaves lived on their own, conducted business on their own. The image is much like that of indentured servitude in colonial America, or perhaps we may even liken it to the U.S. military. The government owns soldiers for a specific period of time, So that if a soldier goes AWOL, they can be imprisoned. They're held accountable. But they're being paid and working in an upwardly mobile direction within society and will eventually be free from the military. So too in the Roman world, many slaves became free. In fact, slaves under first century Roman law could almost always, almost without exception, count on becoming free. Many times by their 30s if they were born into slavery. So, that's what slavery was like in Paul's day. What wasn't slavery in the Bible? Well, it's a far cry from what we think of as antebellum slavery here in the United States during the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. It wasn't motivated by the tragic racism which prevailed here in our own country for far too long. 
the two systems were entirely different. With that being said, I don't mean to imply, though, that the slavery of the Greco-Roman world wasn't evil. It's always evil to own others. And there are evidences that there were cruelties within their system of slavery as well. You see that in the very first line here in verse 1 of what Paul describes as slaves being under a yoke. Yokes were heavy, burdensome pieces of farm equipment designed for oxen, working tirelessly in the field. Slavery was bad back then, which is exactly why many desired their freedom in those days. So though Paul and the Bible never advocate revolt and the violent turning over of society, there are some major things that the New Testament does tell us about slavery. Things which I'm convinced, which have and, and can continue to have, a massive impact upon society. There are four things I think we should note that the Bible says about slavery. First, the Bible teaches that slavery is wrong. Remember earlier in the book of 1 Timothy? Look back just quickly at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-11. through 11. There, in speaking about the law of God and, and who it is who is condemned under the law... He lists a number of people who are under God's wrath because they are precisely lawbreakers. And right there in verse 10, Paul says that enslavers, or those who enslave others, are guilty of being sinful before God. Enslaving others against their wills is wrong in the eyes of God. The Bible also says that enslaved people should, if they can, Gain their freedom. That's the second thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21, Paul says this, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were brought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What Paul is doing there is setting guidelines for not bringing disgrace to the gospel as something which makes men revolt and turn against others. But he also adds an important caveat within the whole bit of advice. He says this, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourselves of that opportunity. So Paul is clear. Not only is slavery wrong, but the fact is that slaves should pursue their freedom, and likewise those who are free should pursue remaining free. Thirdly, the Bible also says that Christians who have slaves should free their slaves. We see this in that wonderful little book of Philemon. The letter to Philemon is written by Paul as he himself is in chains as a prisoner. And he writes it because he's met this guy, Onesimus, in prison with him. And Onesimus has been converted to the Christian faith through Paul's preaching. But Paul has actually found out that Onesimus is a runaway slave. So Paul does this rather bold thing. He sends this letter, which we have in our scriptures, uh, with Onesimus back to Philemon, the very man Onesimus ran away from. And in this letter, Paul tells Philemon this, that Philemon should, quote, receive him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. You see, Paul sets here the trajectory for Christians who are free in Christ to make sure that any slaves they own are also free as men. 
The fourth thing the Bible tells us about slavery is that God is bringing about an ultimate society where there will be no more slavery among men at all. In Christ, a new kingdom is being set up where one day all will be free from the very human and very fallen structures we place upon ourselves. There will be no more corrupt governments, no more corrupt policing. In fact, there will be no more police because there will be no more sin. There won't be any more good old boys clubs, no more cultural blindness, no more cultural guilt. And in fact, that future day is, according to the Bible, already breaking in now within the church. It is within the church in Christ where Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only and ultimate grounds on which true freedom and true equality can be had. That's where redemption is heading. Just as a point of encouragement, Greenbelt Baptist Church, we are a witness to this. It's said too many times with truth and I think sadness that the most segregated day in all America is on Sunday mornings. I don't think that that is true at all here. And I daily thank God for that. This is, I'm convinced, a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, left to ourselves, many of us might probably never interact with each other, much less consider each other brothers and sisters. And and yet, because of Christ and, and the hold that he has on each one of us, we can daily come together in beautiful harmony, living lives together as one body. That's the result of God's grace. Friends, especially in today's culture where it is evident that racial and cultural tensions are high. The world around us is looking at us to see how we are living and to see how we are responding. Let's be honest. We are all of us in here sinners. And as sinners, we come with our own blind spots and our own ignorance as how we are to live together. But the beauty of the gospel within this church is that in love, together as brothers and sisters, we can encourage one another daily, considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see that day of full reconciliation coming. This is hard work. It's not something that we should push to the side and and not think about or ignore. It's good work that will take real thinking, selfless love, a few awkward conversations, But I pray that we can continue to honor our Lord by doing this work well here. So with all that as our build-up and our background, what is Paul commanding us here in 1 Timothy 6? Well, we need to note that the city of Ephesus was well known to have had a huge population of slaves. And so no doubt there were many slaves within the Ephesian church. There's probably real tension within that church as well. Slaves and masters worshiping together side by side. And as Paul has been arguing throughout the last couple of chapters, one of the marks of a healthy gospel-centered church is good gospel honor. Remember? The church is to honor its widows. We saw last week how the church is to honor its elders. And here, with concern to protecting the gospel, especially as how the wider society views the gospel, Paul commands that slaves, while slaves are to honor their masters. And he shows us this in two ways. 
Verse 1 gives advice concerning how slaves are to relate to their masters. Look, he says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Perhaps the striking thing about this verse is that Paul is speaking to Christian slaves who have unbelieving masters. We know this because in verse 2 he switches his focus to talk about believing masters. But also because at the end of verse 1 he adds, So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What's in view here then is a slave who has just tasted true sweetness and, and, and the loveliness of freedom in Christ. He's convinced and has assurance that he is now a citizen of heaven and that all things are now to him new. This is good. But the temptation is to now neglect the very real duties and the very real requirements upon him here and now. This is, in fact, a very common temptation to many new Christians, one which I fell into easily myself. I remember when I was a young, brand-new Christian and I was working at a restaurant My job was to serve customers well, a tireless job, giving my whole attention to their dining experience, making sure everything ran smoothly for them. This required not only the upfront and out-in-the-restaurant business of taking their orders and and giving them drinks, but it also was the hidden work behind the scenes, in the kitchen, making, making sure things ran smoothly there. And as a new Christian, I remember the temptation to go to always go back to the kitchen when guests didn't need my immediate attention, uh, and just go read my Bible or, or, or talk to others about the gospel who are also back there. Friends, reading my Bible was a good thing, but not when a company or when a boss is paying me by the hour to do a certain task. And it came about, sadly, that I brought disgrace to the gospel because my unbelieving boss saw exactly why I wasn't getting the work done that needed to be done. This pleases neither God nor man. And it seems that something like this was happening in Ephesus. Newly converted slaves were seemingly being tempted to not honor their masters, to not fully do what they were called to do. And and so these unbelieving masters may have been saying things like, this Christian message is a destructive message. It's ruining the work ethic of all my workers who claim to be Christians. They used to work hard. But now all they do is discuss theology and try and convert my other workers. This thing called the gospel is making my workers worthless. Paul is saying here, the best thing slaves can do is to work well and honor their masters. The result might actually be the master's conversion and the gaining of a brother. This issue is so serious to Paul that he'll give this command later to the Ephesians church uh, in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter uh, 6. He says this, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as bond servants in Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. The point Paul's making here is that slaves... In fact, anyone who works for someone else should work well, and not just when being watched, not as just eye service or as people pleasers, but even behind the scenes when nobody will ultimately know if you are working at all. And why? 
because it's unto the Lord and because of the Lord, the Lord who does see all of our works, that we ultimately do our work. Friends, this applies to almost everyone here this morning. The place where you work is, I'm willing to bet, made up of many people who do not believe the gospel. And that's good. It's good to work. It's good for unbelievers and believers to work together. But it's good for you to work well in the midst of them because as you interact with them, it will probably come about that they'll know you're a believer. That's a normal thing. And may we who are believers be on guard to protect our witness of the gospel. It's in those hours of our day where the world really gets to know us. That more often than not, the world will make its decision about the gospel we hold so well. Are you shining and reflecting the goodness of God as you work? And listen, we know this. The gospel is offensive. We know and believe that it's offensive. We're okay with the fact that the gospel is offensive. The Bible tells us that the natural impact of the gospel upon an unbeliever's heart is akin to putting a plate of rotten peas before a two-year-old. They'll always push it away. Of course, the gospel isn't a plate of rotten peas. It is an eternal feast of divine beauty, the most well-prepared and perfect food we could ever delight ourselves in and nourish ourselves on. But the point is, unbelievers, unless made to have their eyes opened and hearts softened by the Spirit of God, will always reject the gospel and disgust. The gospel is offensive to them. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that, therefore, we can be offensive. May it never be. May the offense always be in the gospel, never in our character, nor in our morality and ethics, and according to Paul here, never in our day-to-day work. Paul will give this instruction in Titus 2, where again he says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith. And then he adds this, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other words, if the gospel is likened to the most perfectly seasoned and well-prepared cooked steak, or lobster if you prefer, then may we not distract from its beauty and goodness by by presenting it on a dirty diaper. In everything we do as Christians, in everything we do as a church, may we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Well, if the temptation of some slaves was to be lazy in their work and not honor their masters, it seemed that for others the temptation was even stronger precisely because their masters were already believers. The thinking probably went something like this. If I'm to work hard so as to adorn the gospel and thus as a witness for Christ be used to bring my master to faith, I guess I don't have to work that hard because my master's already a believer. In fact, since he's my brother in the faith and we're a part of the same church, he's okay with me taking a little time off here and there. He'll, of course, show me grace. Paul goes on to say in verse 2 that that is emphatically wrong. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, Paul says, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Here's probably where the real tension lied for those whom Paul was writing. Here was a church filled with this mixed group of both slaves and masters, freed men and free men. 
and all brothers and sisters together. And it seems that these believing slaves were now taking liberties with their work, expecting to be shown lenient grace because their masters were believers and brothers as well. One of the huge dangers here was that the gospel would be tarnished. Others would see that the Christian slaves were taking liberties with their Christian masters, and the conclusion would go something like this. Oh, this is just another exclusive society that gives benefits to its members to do whatever they want. In other words, it's a good old boys club with a religious facade. But Paul says no. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. The attitude should never be one of disrespectful liberty. What are you going to do? Fire me now, my brother? Paul says, rather, that's not of love. And true love that is grounded within the rich soil of the love of Christ actually seeks to uphold, honor, and respect all, whether they're beneath you or above you. Love doesn't pull others down to your level in a disguised attempt to level the playing field. No, the true leveler of ground is sincere Christian love and honor. I wonder if it offends us that true love is seen in serving and honoring. That true love gives respect to authority. Let us be reminded of what Paul tells husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. You see the point? True love that exists between a husband and a wife goes hand in hand with honor and service. The two dying to self in order to exalt and hold up in high honor their respective spouse. And especially, and in light of the fact, when the man or woman you are married to is still a broken sinner. Perhaps you're still offended at such an idea. Listen to what Christ says of himself and us. John 13, 12 through 17, Jesus says, or John says of Jesus, when he had washed their feet and and put on his outer garments and, and resumed his place, he said to them this, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, Christian, blessed are you if you do them. Indeed, Christ would go on to say, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise great authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's Christ, who is Lord of lords. He's King of kings. 
the high and exalted master to whom every knee will one day bow, is also our servant of servants, the most perfect slave of all. Christ gave himself to be bound by the chains of our sin and guilt and was dragged deep down into the slavery of death. Death is that enslavement from which there is no escape, no freedom, ever. If you're here this morning as someone who's not a believer, I encourage you to take this seriously. That outside of Christ, we're not only enslaved to sin, we were headed to an eternal enslavement of darkness and death. But of course, death could not hold our king. The chains of death were ultimately broken in his service for us so that now in him, in his resurrection, in his new life, we can now not only be free, free from death and sin, no longer slaves to sin, but we can also become servants to one another, giving ourselves in love, honor, and serving others first, counting them as more important than ourselves as Christ did for us upon the cross. This is the gospel that we believe. And I pray this is the gospel you all know and live out daily. Jesus indeed promises us that all who come to him, all who labor and are heavy laden, he'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls in me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, Friends, in him we are freed and empowered to serve others as servants well. And let us serve Christ, our King, well, and serve and love our brothers well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that your word is clear, and it is a light unto our path, and it is active and sharp. Father, we pray that you would pierce us by the good news of your gospel. Free us to serve others well. Free us to bow our knee to Christ well. It's in his name we pray. Amen.